Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hello. Who's in studio? And then our West Coast correspondent this week, calling in from L.A., Liel Leibowitz. Booker told me Los Angeles. Yeah. What are you wearing out there in L.A. in your hotel room, Liel? To paraphrase the great Marilyn Monroe, I have nothing but this podcast on. <laughs> you're in you're in like a velvet smoking jacket with a precisely slippers and, and, and slippers slippers and overlooking my empire. Later in the show, we'll be talking with novelist and gay bear superstar Wayne Hoffman. And if you don't know what a bear is in gay culture, you need this episode. <laughs> and our guest Gentile Elvis Harvey is a dog walker on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where he meets many many. Uh, people of the Hebrew persuasion. We're going to talk to him what it's like to be a dog-walking goy on the Upper West Side. But first, a little news of the Jews. Speaking of Uptown Manhattan, they've renamed a street in Washington Heights for Jacob Birnbaum, the late Soviet jewelry activist. You can go you can go walk down his street. Slightly more sexy news, it was Fashion Week in Tel Aviv. It's unclear from the photos if any Jews actually got to walk the runway or if it was just a bunch of leggy Eastern Europeans and Brazilians. But worth noting that Israel was one of the first countries to take a stance against two skinny models. In 2012, the country banned the use of any models with a body mass index under 18.5. I don't know what that means. How, how stringent it's is that? It's really skinny, but they're like, eat something, eat something. You look hungry. Like if if you have <laughs> one falafel ball, you're over 18.5. Yeah, <laughs> but I think no one's making any sorts of regulations so that the, the fact that they're doing something means something. Right. And in England, J.K. Rowling, that is Harry Potter's creator herself, as you know, was one of a whole bunch of authors to write a letter to The Guardian denouncing the Boycott Israel movement. So J.K. Rowling on the side of Israel. Here it's worth mentioning that if you've always been wondering, what does Mark Oppenheimer look like? I get Daniel Radcliffe a lot. But Daniel Radcliffe is like 27. He's 27 and... And you get him like in the first Harry Potter, I feel No, no, like. no. I actually get him in sort of the end of Harry Potter, but not since. Like not Kill Your Darlings and the work he's done since. But I don't get him as a child when he looks very English as he grows into his Jewish affect as an adult. Yeah, you have like pubescent yeah. uh, Radcliffe. Um, last week we talked about I'm That Jew, the uber annoying six-minute video by Israeli blogger Etan Chetayat. And this week, some better news from the world of viral videos. There's been a lot of attention to Hotline Bling, the new video by Bar Mitzvah Boy and former Jewish day school student Drake. Um, it's been covered in the New York Times. It has 8 trillion views, I think, on Apple Music. It was 8 trillion, Stephanie? I don't, I mean, I didn't even realize things counted that high. Right. It's, it's high. It's the most watched thing in the universe. It's more watched than the sun. Um, what is it about this video that is so catchy and why is the world paying attention to Drake for what's ultimately not even one of his top seven songs ever? Well, it's a great song. Um, I think every it's song, every Drake song. Every, is one yes, of the every top Drake song is great. Songs. You're talking to admittedly biased people, but it's really, really catchy. It came out this summer on a mixtape and he just released the video this week. And it's basically a product of the internet. Like in that Times piece, John Caramonica says, like, it's made to be memed, which means for... Yeah, can you def- go ahead define meme to a Stephanie? Meme is like an internet joke. Um, and, you know, it's like you take a picture of something and then you put that, like, big, uh, chunky white lettering on it being like, when your crew is ready to go out, but you're not. And it's like a picture of a dog lying down or something like that. But Drake, I mean, Drake has been this thing that's sort of... Been, he's been co-opted by the internet in a lot of ways. Like, his, his face appears on everything. I have a pair of socks with his face on them. Um, they're one of the best gifts I've ever been given. But he sort of seems to be part of the game as opposed to celebrities who don't really like that 
loss of agency. He has sort of like willingly been taken up by the internet and by his fans who who you can get anything you want on the internet with Drake's face and he Drake, gets like, it too. Nobody means Drake but Drake. Yeah, like he he wears those things. Like it's crazy and so he's really been part of this internetization of his of his persona and so this video he actually said um while making it like oh that's going to be memed when they were looking at the playback of like part he's basically dancing I'm dancing the way he's dancing like he does like dad bar mitzvah dance moves and they're like he does them in a space that you can like very clearly make a short video of it and put it all over the internet so so for example the Cosby show theme music has been overlaid on top of his dance moves and it kind of syncs up yeah and, and immediately it's the sweaters. raped 87 women <laughs> too early for that too um, early for Cosby but yeah, so not in Los Angeles but, and now he just like wears his sweaters with pride and he like you know he does his dad dance moves and that's sort of like this weird niche in which he's almost exploded like he 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 his song that I can't say on the air but his, the music video for it was him having a rebar mitzvah and it was like his barn. We talked about this on a previous episode. And it's like, that was an insanely successful video. Why can't you say it on the air? There's a podcast. It's hell yeah, fucking right. H-Y-F-R. I don't know. My parents are listening. Hi, mom. Love you. I think speaking of bar mitzvahs and, and Drake, I think one of the fascinating things is t- there's an element to religion itself. And um, I'm hardly the first person uh, or the most intelligent one to comment on this, but there's an element of religion itself that really uh, depends highly on memes. You know, those those little snippets that we get in, on, on Hebrew school and Sunday school, they're not designed to be sort of logical, streamlined uh, communications. They're designed to be short, little, incredible, super catchy bits of, of content. And, and they succeed because of that very reason. And I think kind of like Drake and, and other, you know, smart people of the internet sort of get that, sort of get that this is how uh, real, you know, not just community, but really communion is created. So are the commandments like the original tweets? Is there a commandment longer than 140 characters? Probably not. God knew. He was like, those people have a very short attention span. And look, here's a cat. At God knew. (laughs) Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team Submission, the new novel by Michel Houellebecq, Enfant Terrible, except not so much of an enfant anymore, middle-aged man terrible of French literature, has just dropped in the United States. It's translated by Lauren Stein. And Leo, you read this book. It's about uh, the year 2022 or so when France in some alternate universe elects a Muslim president. It's an alternate universe, uh, not at all like our own, in which, you know, there's a huge tension between extreme right-wingers and Muslim immigrants. So uh, science fiction, basically. <laughs> what, uh, should we read this book? Is it, uh, is it important for us Americans today? It sounds like you're saying yes. I think you should absolutely read this book. Uh, the point uh, of this novel, which I, I insist on calling in its, you know, snooty French pronunciation, soumission, even though I read it in English, um, is is really interesting. It's not just the sort of provocation of what would happen if a Muslim Brotherhood uh, soft-spoken Obama-esque candidate wins the presidency and, with the support of the of the Socialist Party, sets up uh, a Sharia law uh, over France. It's it's actually kind of more interesting and provocative than that because it suggests that uh, the Europeans having kind of nothing going for them except for a tremendous amount of of, of sort of guilt uh, over their own slights perceived and imagined uh, against 
the people they colonized, uh, would actually be very receptive and at some point also really enamored with all the pleasures. I mean, the, the point is that all these old professors, the hero of the book is uh, a professor at the Sorbonne, and at some point all these old crotchety professors find it really delightful to convert to Islam because, you know, they all get two or three or four young wives uh, and, and tremendous respect because all of a sudden it's a strictly male-dominated society. And most of them just have a very easy sense of, of, of adjustment to this new reality, uh, not really caring that much that they're now living under Sharia law because Europe, as, as Wolbeck puts it, is, is uh, you know, out of ideas and out of uh, political, emotional, moral steam anyway. So this book has been insanely controversial, really, really, really popular and um, hated and loved. Um, the left wing says it's right-wing propaganda. Everyone says it's Islamophobic. Is he preying on France's anti-immigrant sen- like sensibility right now? Like, Is he preying on this, this fear of a Muslim president? Not at all. And, and, and the thing is, it's not uh, really Islamophobic. I mean, it, it takes great pains in suggesting that you know, we've just as much to fear from the National Front and Marine Le Pen and, and, and the hardcore Another right wing. Another great name. Uh, Marine Le Pen. I just love pronouncing things. Doyenne of right wing. Like they could do whatever they wanted and we'd still be like, Marine Le Pen. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to read it and we'll, we'll check back in with, with you and see if it's, uh, if it's, you know, if it's all that you say it is. Does that sound good? I liked it a lot. All right. Our Jewish guest today is Wayne Hoffman. He works with us at Tablet. He's the former managing editor of the New York Blade, which is a, it was a newspaper for... LGBT New York. Homosexuals? Yes. yes. All of us, yes. All of you. Back when there were just gays and lesbians and bi's. Yes. Back when there were fewer... Fewer letters. The acronym was shorter. Uh, He's worked at uh, Billboard and at The Forward, and he's the author of three novels, Hard, Sweet Like Sugar, and the new sequel to Hard, An Older Man. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you. Um... I'm just going to dive right into your beard, so to speak. You wouldn't be the first. You, yeah. <laughs> if you had a shekel for every time you heard that one. <laughs> you, are, you are something of a, a, an activist and figure in the world of bear literature. Do you want to explain to our listeners, Jew and Gentile, straight and gay alike, what uh, the bear culture is? Bear culture is sort of two things. Uh, and the, this is B-E-A-R. B-E-A-R, like Roar. Ursine. Ursine. On the one hand, bear culture is about the physical trappings of quote-unquote masculinity, which is a a word I use extremely advisedly. Um, So bears tend to be big, hairy guys with beards. That's shorthand. On a sort of second, deeper level, it's it's about a way of treating people uh, and of looking at yourself, about not body shaming other people for how they look necessarily, uh, and about not bowing down to dominant paradigms of how gay men are supposed to look in the eyes of other gay men and the gay media. And your your novels are, I mean, do you regret that they're pigeonholed or that they could be pigeonholed as bear novels? I mean, do you regret that they you have your big book signing at Bear Week in Provincetown? I, or? I choose to use the, the term marketing rather than pigeonholing. <laughs> um, I mean, they're literature. One doesn't want to be seen as a Jewish novelist or a bear novelist or a... Yeah, you know, that's true. Uh, And yet, bears want to see themselves reflected and rarely do. And to see 
someone who's not a cute 22-year-old going, oh, I'm looking for my first love, or a 17-year-old going, oh, I should really come out, or if you read Andrew Holleran, like a 70-year-old going, oh, I'm so old. So to, to bridge that gap and see anything in the middle, I'm perfectly happy if if I've tapped into a part of the community that feels that it doesn't usually see itself represented. And yes, I hope other people follow along. I'm also very happy, Wayne, uh, even though I'm not gay, but any any culture uh, that wants to find, you know, big, hairy men attractive is a culture I'm a, a big fan of, support of. See, right on. Mm-hmm. Now, now, an older man is set in Provincetown where I go every summer for Bear Week, and I know Liel had gone to Provincetown a couple summers ago. I've and... never felt more more attractive in <laughs> <Yeah>. my life. <laughs> I, when I realized that the week he was going was, I think, purely coincidentally going to be Bear Week, I said, well, you're going to get a lot of attention walking down the street, so just, <laughs> you know, let your wife know. I liked it. I'm secure. Let, let your kids show. know. <laughs> I really loved it. The daddy's very popular. Yeah. I've always wondered, I've, I've never, I've always meant to ask you, Wayne, what is my, do I have strong bear potential? I'm not particularly large. I'm 5'8", and I should say fairly trim, but I, I could grow a, a, a beard in about three days. You're if like I, an otter. Am I a... Well, you know, the bear world has a lot of animals in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, what animal would I be well, at 5'8", 160? Wayne, he's, he's no longer, a, he's not a twink, right? That, that is you, not Mark, Mark is not a twink, although I will say, despite the fact that your age, I believe, starts with a four now. It does. Um, you actually still kind of qualify as a cub. Ooh. Um, if you grew a beard, uh, I have to say I haven't seen you with your shirt off, but you could be somewhere <laughs> in the wolf or otter category, depending on where you landed. I'm sorry. You're in the room together right now. Why are we not resolving? Yeah, how He's wearing a t-shirt take off your shirt. under his button down. How hairy, <laughs> how hairy are you? I have a fairly hairy chest. Then you could be an otter. So my favorite thing, one of the best scenes in this book is at the tea dance, which is when in Provincetown on Bear Week, all the bears are on the dance floor with their shirts off. And, you know, Mo, our protagonist, is... Mo Pearlstein. Pearlman. Pearlman. Um, he's, he doesn't want to take his shirt off. And there's this, like, within this culture of, of acceptance and body love, which I love. Like, I think we all need this, this idea of, like, these big guys on the dance floor, shirts off, who, you know, proud of themselves and not feeling shamed about their bodies. But Mo's doesn't want to take his shirt off. And, like, this is just an amazing scene where someone finally gets him to take his shirt off and everyone just goes nuts because they know he doesn't do it. And so why was that scene important? That scene's important because the order in which things happen, it's not necessarily about feeling proud about your body and then being willing to take your shirt off. It's often a matter of either faking it and taking a chance and pretending that you're proud of your body or just not ashamed of your body. Um, And then some of it is just not giving a crap anymore. Uh, especially most of the guys at Bear Week and most bears tend not to be 20-year-olds. Uh, and at Bear Week, the average age is probably somewhere around 40-something. Um, there's a point past which it really just doesn't matter what other people think anymore, I hope. Uh, and so you're willing to take your shirt off and take a risk because you feel like it and you've always wanted to or it's hot. And as it turns out at Bear Week, no one really minds or cares. And some people are applauded and other people are just you know, smile that politely, but there's not a lot of active body shaming. That takes a lot to get to. Wayne, these two books, um, you know, Hard and An Older Man, really follow the same character in what I think, um, 20 years apart in what I really think are probably uh, two bookends uh, of, of major historical watershed moments mm-hmm. in the gay community. What's, what's, what's changed for Mo and, and what's changed for you uh, in the time that passed between book one and book two. Well, you know, Hard takes place in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s in New York City. 
uh, and Mo is an AIDS activist. And what we're watching in the late 90s in New York City, which comes out of real life, is two things. One, a crackdown against gay businesses being led by a conservative Republican mayor, which actually happened, uh, with gay businesses closing by the dozen. And at the same time, the advent of protease inhibitors and sort of a, a major turning point in the AIDS epidemic where the epidemic would fundamentally change uh, in terms of survival rates and illness. And what we didn't know when it happened is just how big a deal that would be, whether that would actually mark an enormous turning point in the epidemic where it would never be the same again, or whether it would be um, you know, a helpful thing that made right. things slightly less awful for a year or two. As it turns out, it was an enormous turning point in the epidemic, but that wasn't immediately clear from the outset. And so what you're looking at in the late 90s and hard is the culmination of a decade and a half of AIDS activism hitting two very strange forks in the road at the same time. One very much anti-sex and the other very much uh, a hopeful, positive view of what might change in the epidemic uh, in the years ahead, even though it was still very tentative and uncertain. And... and uh... Now, with with gay marriage, the law of the land? You know, now when you look at an older man, and this is one of the things people who have read both books have told me, well, there's so much less about politics in an older man. And, and it's true. To some extent, there is. Although, if you read to the end, you realize that politics hasn't really changed all that much. But it is less of a pressing issue. You see less activism. That's not just around AIDS. That's around almost everything in America these days. Um, the epidemic is different. Gay life is different. Straight responses to gay life are different. And so people seem, on the one hand, more at ease with their lives, and on the other hand, less engaged whenever there is a problem, because there aren't pre-existing structures where people can respond to things like a police crackdown or a health emergency. The, those structures are largely faded from most people's everyday experiences as gay men these days. If you're a bear-oriented man... I am. Uh, do you drive through certain Orthodox neighborhoods of Brooklyn <laughs> that are filled with uh, often heavy set, not entirely, but have a share of overweight and always bearded men, and you just break into a sweat? I mean, you're just... Your trousers are on fire? Uh, sadly, no. <laughs> uh, I think it would be different if I weren't myself Jewish, if, <laughs> if going through those neighborhoods didn't evoke different feelings in me. <laughs> Uh, I think if I were a non-Jewish man, that'd be a very different discussion. But I will say that the the bear community has provided a fairly easy way for ultra-Orthodox men who are either closeted or just coming out to pass unnoticed in the gay, in the gay world. And you will see Hasidic men with their beards in gay bars and gay cruising grounds online. You will see them because they blend in. Baruch Hashem. Thank God for the Jews. All right. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you. And now our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week. We have a... a fabulous non-Jew in the studios today. Elvis Harvey is a dog trainer on the Upper West Side of New York, where he works for lots, you must work for lots of Jews. Yes. 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 And that's how he came to understand what a mezuzah is. Is that right? A who? A mezuzah? The little thing on the door? 
Yes, thank you. Yeah. Now I know what that is now. I, oh, call, yeah. I call it a scroll. <laughs> a scroll, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the word when you put a scroll inside that little ceramic thing is a mezuzah. Now what's actually in there? What's in there is uh, some prayers, a little rolled up scroll that has um, some excerpts from the Torah, the Old Testament books on them, written on them in Hebrew. Are they all, everyone has the same thing or is it different for each house? It's the same thing. Okay. Same. Although, how awesome would it be if you could just choose your favorite? <laughs> so, I, I want I want something with smiting to go on my mezuzah. <laughs> That's right. Or I want like the extra protection one. Where are you from? What? Tell us how you got. Tell us your journey in one minute. Tell us your journey. Where were you born? How did you end up here? I'm originally from Northern Virginia, DC area. I left there in 2004. Moved to Austin, Texas. Nice. Because I, I I did a lot of bartending, a lot of different careers. I sold cars. I sold bikes. And I usually try to sell, I, I usually go into a different career and work my way up to the top and then go to a different one. So it's every five years I choose a different career. So what year are you in on this one? I'm actually on t- year 12 now. <laughs> but but while still doing other careers mixed with them, like I nice. sold cars, I sold Volkswagens for five years, and I wanted to be the number one salesperson when I got into it. And I did. And I said, okay, I'm done. But I still did the dog training on the side. Guys, I, I got a puppy like three weeks ago. <laughs> uh, I am what kind I am, of puppy? A doodle? A blue, a blue tick coonhound. Wow! So yeah. a southern dog. Oh yeah. From Georgia? From from Louisiana, we think. You think? Uh, How, yeah. Is it does ha, is it have spotted legs, spotted paws? Yes. Uh, web feet? Yeah, I haven't looked at the dog um, feet. How That's old? A weird question. How old? <laughs> Seven months. Let me ask you this. Yes. Um. When when you go out there, what are the most common mistakes that people make when they adopt dogs? Humanizing them, way too long. What do you way mean? Way too long. It's treating them like a baby. And what do you do when you treat a kid like a kid until he's like thirteen years old? You have problems when you put him out into society. The dog doesn't understand how to be a dog. It's been held and coddled for nine, ten months. Then when it goes outside to meet other people, what does it do? It jumps on people. Dirty paws and everything jumps on kids. It doesn't understand the restraint of not taking food from a kid. or. So pe- you really don't train dogs. You, you really train their owners. Yes. The dog part is easiest of my job, the absolutely easiest. I can train a dog to do anything I want. To condition a person to see their dog as a dog and still love them, is, it's, it's, it was more complicated than I thought it could be. And am I correct in saying that Jews are probably among the most complicated of your clients? No. No? No. Who Actually, I- not at all. Who is? Catholics. Really? Yes. If I had to do it in the religious part of it, and I, and I, I look at it from the religious, I look at it from the politics. Like, after I finish this book, I want to do one called uh, The Difference Between a Conservative and a Liberal Dog. Oh, and tell I'm, me. You have, you have to tell me. And I, and I want to do, I want to train two dogs identically the same, uh, name them the same, put one in the conservative household, put one in the liberal household for six months, and then, sw- and then switch the dogs six months later. Same names. So <laughs> I want to see how the commands are different from a conservative to a liberal dog. Elvis, what would happen if, if you did that? What do you think? I think the conservative dog would have a harder time adjusting to going to a new home. The liberal, I, this is, again, I, this is me making just making a guess it's not of it. scientific we yes, understand that the liberal would be more uh, accommodating to the dog's stressful times as opposed to conservatives are more routine this again this is just based off of me being here working with all the different people i really really do dig to find out who they are so I, so i know who i'm working with so i can give them the right do- diagnosis for working with their dogs so i don't i don't come in and say okay what do you want your dog to do i want him to sit stay down and that's it okay what's your schedule like well, I'm a banker. 
I don't need to know, I don't need to know what your career is because your dog isn't do, doing any deposits with you. <laughs> What's your stressful level of your career? Are you really stressed when you get home and your dog just doesn't really like you when you get home until 20 minutes later after you've had your first shot or you take your bong hit and everything's fine? <laughs> so I try to get people to release their stress before coming home because our dogs do really do they do feed off of that stuff a lot especially as a puppy when you're, you're so close to them they're in your faces i mean they're licking you in the mouth and yes a lot of people do like their dogs lick them in the mouths get on the top of the table sleep in the beds with them this is making me <laughs> we, so happy but so sad because my parents dog my family dog died this weekend aw, and it, it's like it's, it's this trauma that i feel aw. like i can say here safely like it's People who don't have pets don't understand how sad it is. One of my clients' dog just got hit by a car oh last God. Tuesday. All right, we gotta. We unfortunately, oh, this I'm, is so I'm mourning right now. This is so much <laughs> Let me fun. Have this. But Elvis, you came with a question for us, right? You, the, yes. we always invite the Gentile to pose a question to our panel of experts. What would you What do you want to ask? The us? first question is: This is kind of not my question, question, but it is the Gentile part. Where did that that term come from? Well, we needed a word to describe, you know, the rest of the world. So it's an English word. I mean, in, in, in the Bible, the word is goy, which means the nations. So there's like us who are like the people, and then the nations is everyone else, those other nations of people. I, I don't know where the, where, why they first started using Gentile as a translation for that. Okay, then we'll it's pass. It's a weird word. Okay. I mean, like, I'll I find look it up, I'm uncomfortable I'll, with the concept. But we should, I'll let, dig it up one Let's day. just say Mormons also use it to refer to non-Mormons. They're Mormons and everyone else is Gentiles. But okay, ne- no, okay. next one. Good question, though. But my question is, why aren't Jewish people bigger activists for Black Lives Matter? Okay, so I'm going to come back at you and say, how? what do you base that opinion on that we're not? I don't see a lot of Jewish activists on Is it just because we're lines. white people? I mean, is it that there aren't enough white people? I wouldn't even consider you guys to be white, to be honest. Thank you. No, I no, mean, that's, no, no would I. I mean, I kind of looked it up, and you guys wouldn't fall into the category of being white. Thank you. In terms of the population in the world, too. I, I, those numbers are... We're fine with that. Numbing. I think it, that's a really good question because I think we Jews love to like talk about our involvement in the civil rights movement. Like yes. Jews and rabbis, they were such a, that was such a big thing for us. For, and two generations ago, yeah, that were activists. But and, the new generation today, I think it's different. Then it was almost more important for Jews because they were also such a minority. I mean, the status of Jews in the United States then was so different. And so now I think it's like I do understand that why that would frustrate you. Like this idea that we we're always like, oh, we're the minority. We you know, civil like we like to play it, this card but I, I think you're I think that there isn't the same visible amount of support and I think even more specifically like there are black Jews like we, we we haven't really reconciled that as a community I don't think as well as we could and that to me is like where it starts yeah because it, it's it could it, it, it confuses me a little bit because you know being a minority and how people will stereotype Jewish people is the exact same thing media wise for black people but where are the ones who, who've, who've survived certain moments of, uh, of their movement or getting to, uh, getting to a level of where people say, you know what, maybe it isn't as bad as we thought it was. Let's cut down on the stereotypes. Well, I think, I mean, I think you're right. And I think there are two things going on. One, a lot of Jews are very preoccupied right now with what's happening in the Middle East. And that was, and that was my other point, and, too. Um, and the other thing is that... Um, uh, there's just, yeah, there's not enough attention paid to it. The other part is there's a culpability there that you're pointing out. I mean, you know, there were rabbis who went down to Charleston. I mean, Avi Weiss and Shmuel Hartsfeld. Yes, I saw some you of know, those went too. down to Charleston. But the activism right now is a lot more focused inward. And there is a, uh, an unwillingness to recognize that in America, uh, we have it really, really well, in part because in Europe right now we don't. And there's a huge rise of anti-Semitism, and a lot of people are focused on that. I also think that, you know, you're saying Jews aren't white. I think 
in a large sense, we are right now. Like, yes. the, in, in terms of privilege, like Jews are a privileged minority right now. And, and I think we've got Especially to Especially here in the States. Yeah, in the, in the United States, I mean. And so, like, there, we are we are classified in white in all the ways that seem to matter. But we are also like, oh, no, we are, we're not white. We don't, you know, we come from persecution. But there's this, this weird tension between, I think, in very, a lot of ways, how we're perceived and how we perceive ourselves. We got to stop there. Thank yes. you so much. No, thank you guys very much. Uh, we love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We may read them on the air. Uh, we have to do our Mazel Tovs. Uh, Liel, do you have a Mazel Tov of the week? I sure do. Uh, after 15 years of, of you know, routinely uh, shattering my heart into very small pieces, my beloved, beloved, beloved New York Metropolitans are in the World Series this week. Mazel Tov and let's go Mets! <laughs> Stephanie Butnick. My muscle tub is to my dear older sister, who is running the New York City Marathon this week, um, basically decided to do a marathon and now is doing one. And very impressive, her first one. So congratulations, Franny. Good luck, Franny. Uh, mine is to Jews who are going to celebrate Halloween. There's like some Jews don't do Halloween. Uh, some think it's just it's a pagan holiday. I have one friend who's a Jewish pagan who said it disrespects pagans for whom it's a real holiday that we've co-opted it. And I just want to say to my beautiful daughters and our hundreds of friends in Westville who are going to be trick-or-treating up and down our street, rock on on Halloween. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine. It's produced by Julie Subrin with superior assistance from Sarah Ivory. Rabbinic supervision this week is by Scott Hoffman, Wayne Hoffman's brother. He's a rabbi on Long Island. Kosher slaughtering is by Ben Carson. Our website is tabletmag.com and our music is by Golem. See you next week. Mm-hmm.